So, uh, our title was Geoengineering the Climate, and, uh, Science, Governance and Uncertainty. Um, so, it was not uh, purely about the scientific and technical aspects. And geoengineering, according to our definition, is the deliberate large-scale intervention in the Earth's climate system, and in this instance, uh, specifically in order to moderate global warming. Um, it excludes, for example, um, uh, large-scale damming uh, and storage of water, which some people think of as geoengineering, we're specifically talking about the climate system. And so the study ran for about a year and was, uh, like most Royal Society studies, primarily a review of the literature, uh, concentrating so far as possible on the peer-reviewed literature, although that was difficult in this case because the subject is so new that much of the uh, work that has been done has only been reported informally. Uh, and so we had to um, look at sources of evidence that uh, we normally might not have done. We also asked for uh, people to submit evidence to us, and we had about 75 of those. Uh, some of those were extremely useful, some of them somewhat less so. Uh, but our overall aims were to try and reduce the very extensive level of confusion and the amount of misinformation about this subject, primarily to enable a well-informed debate. Our view was that if there is going to be a debate about this, and we think that is inevitable, uh, it should at least be based on sound information so far as possible. And, and that was our overall attempt. And that is uh, summarized in a bit more detail here in our formal terms of reference. Um, which I don't really wish to read out, except to say that we had a fairly broad remit and we interpreted it fairly broadly. We did not exclude things just because they didn't fit quite within the words that we had uh, framed. Uh, and we tried to include things wherever we thought it was uh, useful. But we were concerned not just about things like feasibility and efficacy uh, and environmental impacts, but also about what research needs to be done and what would be the policy and legal implications. Just a word about the scope. Um, essentially, all methods which involve deliberate large-scale intervention were within our frame, except for uh, what we regard as plan A, that is to say, finding ways to generate uh, low-carbon energy um, and reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, uh, not only because those are uh, relatively well understood and have been relatively well studied, uh, we were interested in the plan B, that is to say, if that's not enough, what else might we be able to do? We excluded carbon capture and storage at the point of emission for the same reason, and also because there was a very good IPCC special report in 2005 on that subject, and we did not think we would be able to add anything to that. And we did not formally consider conventional afforestation and avoidance of deforestation, although these are important subjects. They are also relatively well studied and uh, not undertaken deliberately to modify the environment in general. We had 12 people on the group, mainly scientists and engineers, but we did include one sociologist, um, Steve Vrainer from uh, Oxford, uh, a lawyer and an economist, uh, they were mainly from the UK, although we took an international remit. We had one member from the USA and one from Canada. Uh, none of the members of the committee were uh, 
proponents of geoengineering. None of them were particularly pro or anti, in fact. We had a pretty much the full range of opinion, I would say, from cautious approval to fairly serious scepticism. But we all are signed up, if you like, to plan A, that is, reducing carbon emissions by finding low-carbon sources of energy uh, as the primary objective, and this uh, alternative is very much plan B. Um, I won't uh, talk about the uh, list, I'll just flash the names of the people up so that you can see uh, how many of them you recognise. Um, they're a fairly eminent gang of uh, well-informed, uh, opinionated and argumentative people. So chairing the group was a fairly interesting experience. And here is the list of the questions that we covered. Um, and I'm going to, I hope, answer many of these questions uh, as we go through. So not only what is it and do we need it, but how would you do it? Is it feasible? What cost would it take? What would the side effects be? Who might do it when? What would be the unintended consequences? And if it were done, whom and how could it be controlled? Okay, so to start with the first question, do we need it? I'm sure that if you've come to this talk, you've seen this picture before. This is from the IPCC fourth assessment report, and it shows the uh, likely range of temperature rises by 2100, anywhere from about 2 to about 6 degrees centigrade, depending on what assumptions you make. Uh, the point I want to draw from this is that none of the IPCC scenarios, and indeed no scenario, including some that are more uh, extreme than the IPCC scenarios, none of these leads to the temperature peaking and then reducing by 2100. If it does peak, then it reduces very slowly uh, sometime in the following centuries. So uh, for all the scenarios in involving emissions reductions, we are committed to a continually uh, increasing temperature over the next century, although we may be able to moderate that increase somewhat. And of course, we don't know whether that is going to be satisfactory or not. Uh, Suppose we discover that uh, two degrees warming is uh, seriously uncomfortable. Um, if the Greenland ice sheet disintegrates faster than expected. Suppose we find that the climate sensitivity is in fact higher than we think, which is, uh, I regret to say, entirely possible. Um, under all of these what-ifs, uh, it may be that the sorts of emissions reductions that are currently envisaged even if these can be achieved, may not be enough to keep the planet safe. So what would we do then? Well, deliberate intervention is a possibility. And as Gideon has already said, um, this is uh, not really that novel an idea. Ever since we invented the digging stick, we have been modifying the planetary environment to a very serious extent, and uh, Europe in particular is effectively a geoengineered continent already. Um, however, the idea of uh, intervening deliberately rather than accidentally uh, is uh, a bit novel and needs to be seriously considered before it could be contemplated uh, for real. Now, there are two main methods of geoengineering. 
which we refer to as uh, solar radiation management or SRM and this includes the techniques you may have heard about such as putting uh, reflective mirrors up in space, uh, putting stratospheric uh, aerosols up into the outer atmosphere, uh, trying to enhance the reflectivity of clouds, or even painting your roof white. Uh, the other class involve uh, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, um, and it would of course also be of interest to remove other greenhouse gases, but so far as we know, nobody has proposed methods for doing that, so we restricted our attention to the removal of carbon dioxide. And this again includes a whole range of uh, techniques including ocean fertilization, uh, the actual uh, engineered capture of CO2 from the air by scrubbing it mechanically or chemically, uh, enhanced uh, weathering using uh, accelerated natural processes to remove uh, CO2, uh, or a scheme known as biochar, which involves taking biofuels, uh, only partially burning them, and burying the remaining charcoal. Now, these all differ in many respects, and one of the first messages from this is that it's very difficult to make general statements about geoengineering because the techniques that have been proposed are so various and different. Um, the main difference between these two types of schemes, or one of the main ones, is the time scale required to have an effect. Uh, solar radiation management works fast, within a year or two, whereas carbon dioxide removal will be slow. It's taken us 100 years to put the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and it will take many decades to take it out again. Uh, and that is largely because of the scale of the intervention that is required. We know that doubling greenhouse gases, doubling CO2 in the atmosphere, will lead to a radiative forcing of about four watts per meter squared. So to make a significant dent in that, we need to uh, reduce the radiation balance by a few watts per meter squared. And if we're taking out uh, carbon dioxide, we need to take out about uh, 10 billion tonnes for 100 years uh, in order to really address and reverse the problems that we are currently causing. So the scale of these interventions is large. Uh, now just to illustrate these two methods, this uh, shows the conventional simple view of the radiation balance of the Earth that uh, sets the uh, planetary climate and temperature. And on the left-hand side, we have the incoming shortwave solar radiation, uh, which comes from the sun, and some of which is reflected by clouds, uh, by the Earth's surface, um, and by aerosols. Uh, and on the right-hand side, we have the outgoing infrared thermal radiation that cools the Earth. And it's the balance between these, these the temperature at which these balance, that determines the uh, planetary surface temperature. And we could intervene on either side of this uh, diagram. So the solar radiation management methods intervene on the incoming radiation side, and the carbon dioxide removal methods intervene on the outgoing radiation side. Now, how do we know that any of these things would work? Well, um, we have some idea of what a solar radiation management method might do because uh, volcanoes do this naturally. Um, they cause global cooling by putting very large quantities of small particles, particularly sulfate aerosol particles, 
into the stratosphere and we have observations of what happens. And what we see in this case from the eruption of Mount uh, Pinatubo is the, a cooling of uh, a little bit less than uh, one degree, half a degree to one degree centigrade over uh, a year or two following the eruption. So uh, we have, if you like, a natural experiment there that showed that this is possible, at least in principle. Um, I will talk about the methods uh, in a bit more detail later on. Before I do so, I want to tell you uh, about the criteria that we used to evaluate them. And those are listed here. So there are four primary technical criteria that we considered. That is to say, their effectiveness. Um, that includes feasibility. Would it work at all? Um, is the science and technological basis uh, for doing so sound? What would be the magnitude of the effect that you could achieve? and on what spatial scale, to what extent would it be uniform or highly localised. Timeliness in tries to capture this idea that solar radiation management works fast and so could, uh, you could do something quickly if you had to, whereas with carbon dioxide removal you would have to uh, work for a long time before you saw any um, response from your efforts. Uh, but that includes not only the fundamental uh, timescale there, but also the extent to which any necessary preparatory work has been done, uh, including, for example, for carbon dioxide removal, do we know how to verify the amount of carbon dioxide that we have removed? And that is uh, not obvious in the case of some of the methods proposed. We have a third criterion, safety, uh, which is primarily the absence of unintended environmental impacts, uh, particularly on uh, the less predictable biological systems. And uh, in general, we understand physics and chemistry better than we understand biology. So on, on safety grounds, you would tend to be more comfortable with methods that intervene with the physics and the chemistry of the planet rather than those that rely on interfering with biological systems. And finally, of course, cost. Cost is never regrettably irrelevant. Um, and this includes, of course, ideally, the whole life cycle costs, including carbon accounting and energy accounting. Although I have to say that the information available on most of these schemes is very sketchy uh, on all of these grounds. And, and we have, in many cases, uh, something which is little better than the back of the envelope estimates of what the costs might be. Now I need to explain one more thing, which is all of these criteria are defined deliberately so that uh, a high number is good. They're all positive. So we actually use affordability rather than cost. We use safety rather than environmental impact. And this is so that when we come to try, as we will, to look at all these four criteria together, we always know that a high score is a good thing and we don't have to remember what is supposed to be high and what is supposed to be low because I can assure you that gets very, very confusing. So for that simple reason, these are all turned around to be positive. And these are only the technical criteria. There are a lot of other things that one could and should think about uh, that are listed here. They include technical uh, reversibility, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment, uh, public attitudes, uh, the ethics of intervening at all, 
the political feasibility of doing so and um, arranging for this to be done in an equitable um, and legally uh, enforceable manner? What would the governance uh, implications be? All of these non-technical criteria we were only really able to touch upon and, and mention. That is not to say that they are not important. Um, and um, uh, I happen to know that there is another lecture at this very same time going on on precisely these non-technical governance issues here in Oxford this afternoon. We will be looking at these in much more detail in future. We have barely scratched the surface in our report. However, I do want to say something about reversibility. Reversibility is the idea that if you started this, would you ever to be able to stop? If you discovered that something unexpected happened, something started to go wrong, are you locked in or can you stop and try something else? And that is a very important point, but we did not include it in our major criteria simply for all the methods that we were considering they are more or less reversible on a time scale of uh, years to a decade or so. So that it didn't help us to discriminate between them. Uh, but it is possible that there are methods which are not so reversible, and if they are not reversible, that would be a very serious negative uh, factor. Um, it has been pointed out by our um, uh, social science colleagues that although some things may be technically reversible, the political and social and economic reversibility may not be so easy. If we get a large industry going on the scale of the global coal mining industry, say, involved in taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, people will be making money, having jobs, uh, and having livelihoods that are based on that. So shutting that off might not be so simple uh, if we got into it in a big way. And that is something that needs to be considered in the future. So this just gives uh, a, a list of some of the carbon dioxide removal methods that we considered, uh, because these are many and, and various. Um, it includes things like burning biomass and capturing and sequestering the carbon at the sort of low-tech end um, through ocean fertilization, um, through the engineered scrubbing of the atmosphere to remove CO2, um, and methods such as um, have been proposed here in, in, in Oxford by the uh, sequestrate organization for increasing the alkalinity of the ocean by making uh, lime, calcium hydroxide, and dispersing that in the ocean in order to reverse ocean acidification and also to enhance the ocean's capacity uh, to take up carbon dioxide. The oceans, in case you don't know, are the largest repository of available carbon dioxide on the planet with about 95% of the total and also the largest and most reliable carbon sink. So uh, about one third to one half of the carbon dioxide that we are emitting is currently going into the oceans and will continue to do so for many decades. So thinking about the ocean is important in this context. Now I'm going to run fairly quickly through a set of tables like these. Um, time is too short to discuss them all in detail. They're all in the report which you can download from the Royal Society's website. 
Um, and if you really want to uh, analyze them, uh, I would suggest that you do that. But here we see for a particular method, in this case, one that we didn't study in detail, but included uh, to provide context and so that uh, we could establish the sort of scale of, of um, what low, high, and medium means. Um, that is to say, la uh, modified land use and deforestation. We look at these four primary criteria uh, and we uh, attempt to score them in a semi-quantitative way. We didn't feel we could do any better than say that it's you know, low, medium, or high in general. Sometimes we felt moved to say very high or very low, but that was as far as we went. And so we're not trying to be very precise or very quantitative, simply because the information to do so does not yet exist. Um, but here you see for this particular scheme, which is probably uh, familiar or at least easy to envisage, we would say that its effectiveness is relatively low, uh, and that is because there's a limited amount of land that we could afford to devote to growing trees. Um, it competes with uh, conserving natural forests and uh, with uh, agriculture and, and other uses of land. Uh, it's relatively cheap to deploy. Um, you could do it immediately, but it would only have a slow effect because it is removing carbon dioxide. Uh, and it would have not too many undesirable side effects except for the land use conflicts that would inevitably arise if you tried to do it on a large scale. And, of course, potential implications for biodiversity if these were um, monocultures of conifers that you were planting rather than uh, natural woodlands appropriate to the uh, location. So that's um, one example. Um, Biomass energy with carbon sequestration is a variant on that. Uh, it's more effective because you are actually able to use the production rather than the standing stock of the biological system and hopefully sequester the carbon in the way that you would if you captured it at uh, power plants. Uh, so the effectiveness is higher. Uh, conversely, of course, the, the cost of doing so is higher. Um, the timeliness would be um, medium because you would uh, have to uh, build the plant to, to do it, uh, but you could do it on a bigger scale. And, um, but again, apart from the land use conflicts, it would be a relatively safe method. And in fact, if we need to do something real soon, this is probably the first technique in uh, the toolkit. A variant of this is biochar that I mentioned before and the relative merits of biochar versus biomass energy with carbon storage uh, are to be debated and I won't go into that in detail. Amongst the schemes that involve enhancing natural removal processes by the weathering of uh, basic uh, rocks including silicates and carbonates, um, these operate either on land or uh, in the oceans. Um, for the terrestrial ones, the primary suggestion is that uh, basic minerals such as olivine, which exist in very large quantities, could be mined and ground and spread on uh, soils, preferably in um, low latitude, uh, warm, wet places uh, where they would be most effective. Very similar to liming uh, the soil that farmers do routinely uh, if the soil becomes too acid. It's a very similar process. Um, this is relatively novel uh, and the um, effectiveness and the safety of doing this uh, need to be researched. 
Uh, we then have enhanced weathering in the ocean. I mentioned the sequestrate scheme. There are a number of variants of this. Um, there is a, a potentially very high effectiveness. There is no uh, inherent limit to the scale on which you could uh, do this, at least not that we know of yet. Um, but it would be expensive because you have to mine, process, and if you're going to uh, go all the way to calcium hydroxide, you have to uh, use um, uh, cal calcination plants, uh, like cement plants in a, in a very general way, to make the uh, calcium hydroxide. Uh, and that involves both emitting CO2 that then has to be captured and disposed of, um, and the use of fairly large amounts of energy. So affordability relatively low, timeliness low, would take a long time to achieve the effect. Uh, but safety is probably medium or high, and it has the major advantage that it directly addresses the other climate problem, that is to say ocean acidification, um, on which the Royal Society study published a report which I was involved with in 2005. Uh, and I think finally on this side of the uh, uh, diagram we have CO2 capture from the ambient air by engineered techniques, what is popularly referred to as artificial trees. Um, these are uh, feasible, there are at least uh, four different methods um, being researched on a very small scale, I have to say, but uh, some pilot plant operating. And um, there is a large uh, potential, but again, you capture carbon dioxide and have to do something with it. The costs will inevitably be high, so the affordability is low. Um, but the safety should be uh, very high because you're not actually uh, directly intervening in the environment except by reducing something that we're already doing. We're not actually uh, going out there and putting stuff into the environment. So if they can be made to work, these would be very attractive. But whether they can be made to work at an affordable price uh, remains to be seen. Oh, I forgot ocean fertilization. Um, this is the s s method that you may have uh, heard about, um, which involves uh, putting nutrients into the sea in areas where uh, the Plant production is limited by nutrients, which is uh, a lot of places, uh, in order to increase the drawdown by marine plants uh, in the same way that planting trees increases the drawdown of carbon dioxide by terrestrial plants. Um, there are a number of um, concerns uh, about the effectiveness of this, but it's uh, pretty certain that the effectiveness is rather low. Um, you probably would need to double the primary production of the entire world ocean in order to sequester one billion tonnes of carbon per year, which is only about a one-tenth of what one would really like to achieve. Um, the affordability is um, very much tied up with the effectiveness and somewhat uncertain. The timeliness is certainly low because not only do we need to research the uh, efficacy of this, but we would also need to research in very great detail its environmental impacts, which would be likely to be large, and the verifiability of the amount of carbon removed. So even less uh, rapidly operating than some of the other removal schemes. And for the same reasons, the environmental impacts are such that uh, the safety could not be regarded as uh, being other than very low.
Turning now to the solar radiation management schemes, another one that you may have heard about if you've been following this uh, in the media is the so-called cloud seeding ships that aim to uh, increase the reflectivity of clouds, particularly um, low-level marine clouds, um, uh, marine rather than uh, terrestrial, mostly because people would undoubtedly object, especially in the UK, if you made more clouds. Um, and also because it's more effective over the sea uh, and probably easier to do. Um, now, the number of ways you could do this, the one that is being uh, promoted most vigorously involves using uh, sea salt by pumping small droplets, a spray of seawater uh, from ships to make sea salt condensation nuclei that would, uh, it is uh, hoped, um, increase the reflectivity of clouds in areas where they are rather thin or on the verge of forming. You can't do this where clouds don't want to form at all and there's no point in doing it where you've got a lot already because you've already got more or less the maximum reflectivity. So this can only work in marginal areas um, and it's therefore inherently non-uniform. Most of these solar radiation management techniques uh, are, involve a fairly uniform reduction in the in incoming radiation. This would involve uh, strongly localized reduction, and, and that is an issue which I will illustrate in a moment. Um, like most of the SRM schemes, it would operate rapidly. The costs we don't really know. It depends how difficult it proves to be to pump large quantities of small uh, seawater droplets over long periods of time. This illustrates the um, potential problem with this scheme uh, and it comes from results from uh, John Latham and, and colleagues who are uh, actively researching this um, and the blue areas that you see here or the purple areas represent areas where these clouds like to form and are relatively easy to enhance and where you get strong localized cooling. And this uh, color scale here is in watts per meter squared. So you can see we're talking about co localized cooling of up to 50 watts per meter squared, which is, I assure you, a lot. And it is the sort of thing that makes uh, meteorologists uncomfortable because it is localized cooling such as this that can not only um, uh, generate convection systems but also steer uh, the paths of the winds uh, and alter uh, the patterns of rainfall, uh, particularly in low latitudes. And as you can see, it is in uh, low latitudes near the equator where these effects are most um, uh, noticeable. So there are some severe reservations about this uh, based on the extent to which it might modify uh, weather systems and patterns in uh, localized ways that could cause a lot of problems for agriculture uh, and flooding and drought and so on. So that really needs to be very, very seriously researched uh, as well as the technical feasibility of, of doing it. Uh, moving in no particular order to White Roofs, uh, which was uh, got a fair amount of press coverage recently when Stephen Chu, um, new uh, energy secretary, uh, from the US uh, mentioned it at uh, uh, a lecture at Buckingham Palace, I think, um, about a couple of months ago. Um, 
this undoubtedly will, if you have a house which is too hot, then having a white roof will undoubtedly help you uh, reduce your air conditioning costs and improve your local comfort. But it, it will not do a lot for the energy balance of the planet simply because there is not enough area of roofs out there to make a big difference. Um, it's a fraction of 1% of the area of the planet is actually covered by habitation and um, you can therefore, there's an inherent upper limit on the amount of uh, change to the reflectivity uh, and therefore the energy balance that you can achieve. So locally, maybe very advantageous, I, I had a whole series of white cars uh, that I, I bought for going to France in the summer because before the days of air conditioning that increased one's comfort considerably. So on a local level, no problem, but on a global level, it's not really uh, in the running. If you want to get that effect and make it bigger, then people have proposed going out and covering deserts with reflective materials, um, space blanket type um, materials. And that, of course, would be more effective, uh, but it would also have much bigger ecological and environmental side effects on the desert ecosystems. And so here you have a very clear trade-off uh, uh, as to, to what extent you would wish to protect desert ecosystems uh, and communities. And I mean, personally, I think that the people who live in deserts would have a strong opinion about this, um, uh, which should not be discounted by enthusiasts for um, planetary engineering. And among the most uh, promising techniques is this concept of mimicking the effect of volcanoes by putting uh, large quantities of small particles, aerosols, into the upper atmosphere, um, preferably at about twice the height that jet aircraft normally fly. Uh, that's where they would be most effective. And this has the merit of uh, being effective. Um, we have some verification from volcanoes that it would work. There's no inherent uh, limit to the size of the effect that you could achieve. Uh, it's relatively affordable because the lifetime of aerosols in the stratosphere is much longer, uh, several years, compared with that in the troposphere, where we live, where it's a few weeks, um, you can uh, achieve a big effect with a relatively small quantity of material, uh, and that reduces the costs very substantially. Uh, it would be fast to operate, um, but there are some considerable concerns about its uh, impacts, um, particularly the fact that uh, you would almost certainly be impossible to achieve a, a uniform effect uh, globally. Uh, and even if you did, the consequences for the climate would not be uniform, and I'll show you why in a minute. Um, and, and that is a worry. Uh, it will also probably have an adverse effect on stratospheric ozone, and we've just spent uh, several decades trying to preserve the ozone layer by reducing emissions of um, uh, chlorinated compounds. Um, there would possibly be some effects on high-altitude clouds that are not well understood, and there would potentially be effects on biological production, although these could be positive because plants tend to like diffuse radiation more than direct radiation. So you could have a positive side effect rather than a negative one. But the non-uniformity problem is illustrated here. The top panel shows... Uh, if you like a standard two times CO2 global warming picture showing that it's uh, warmer everywhere uh, but particularly at high latitudes near the poles 
Uh, and then the lower panel shows what you get if you simply reduce the solar radiation by 1.8% uh, globally uh, while still having double CO2 in the atmosphere. And as you can see, uh, that um, cancellation is not half bad, but it's not perfect. And we have, in fact, slightly too much cooling in the white areas uh, near the equator and not enough cooling at the high latitudes near the poles where we still have uh, yellow colours indicating uh, warming of still more than one degree, but still a heck of a lot less than we would have had without the solar radiation management intervention. So just based on temperature, it doesn't look too bad. But if you look at precipitation, rainfall, it doesn't look quite so good. We have some very severe impacts on rainfall patterns from global warming in the first instance, shown in the upper panel. And the effect of the geoengineering intervention is to reduce that very substantially. Um, as you can see, the um, uh, anomalies are uh, much less. But if you look, you can see that at low latitudes, the colors are actually reversed. So what you have done is not only compensate for the rainfall changes, but at low latitudes you have actually overcompensated. So where global warming would lead to increased rainfall, global warming with geoengineering would lead to decreased rainfall. So there are regional effects, even from a very uniform intervention, that need to be seriously considered uh, and researched before such a method could be uh, considered for implementation. And finally, the science fiction stuff, the uh, space-based methods. Um, you know, colleagues who are more knowledgeable about this than I am say that this is uh, also not completely stupid. Uh, if we really wanted to, we probably could engineer some sort of space-based reflector. It would be very effective. It would not involve putting anything into the environment in which we live, which would be a positive uh, attribute. Uh, would not be very timely because it would take a long time to build such a system. The, the area of reflector that you need is truly massive. I've forgotten how many million <laughs> kilometers squared, but it's a lot. Um, the safety should be uh, reasonably good, uh, better than the stratospheric aerosols, because you could probably tune the uh, radiation reduction that you achieved, and you would not have any direct uh, biochemical interventions in the atmosphere. Um, so, the bottom line here is that uh, if you can do this with less than a million ton mirror, it might actually be worth considering for a very long-term uh, intervention. If your mirror or mirror system weighs more than a million tons, then you're probably in trouble on the cost side. Um, but, so there's a fairly fundamental question there. Can you do it with a million tons of stuff or not? Okay. So we then took all this, we took all those scores, we turned them into numbers so that we could plot them and we put them in this table. This table is in the report and if you want to um, look in detail at uh, our evaluation, that's where you should look. And we turned it into numbers so that we could produce diagrams like this, um, where we've tried to plot four dimensions on a two-dimensional sheet of paper. And the uh, solution to this was provided by um, the ecologist on the panel. Ecologists are very used to dealing with multi-dimensional data sets and so we were pleased that we had that uh, expertise available to us. Um, 
And we've plotted effectiveness on the uh, uh, left-hand axis, the up and down scale, uh, against affordability, the inverse of cost, um, as the two primary axes. We've then attempted to capture timeliness by putting in a big blob if it works quickly and a small blob if it works slowly, and safety by colouring it red if we think it's not very safe and green if we think it is safe. Uh, and so you can see that the carbon dioxide removal schemes, um, there's nothing in the top right-hand corner. What we're looking for here is a big green blob in the top right-hand corner. It's not there. We have um, a range of uh, options that fall roughly on an uh, effectiveness affordability trade-off line here, including, just for comparison, carbon capture and storage uh, at source at the power stations uh, by the conventional means. Um, the enhanced weathering and CO2 air capture schemes are up here, uh, more effective because there's no limit to the effect that you could achieve, but less affordable. And afforestation is down here, relatively cheap, but not able to really um, give a, a, a big effect. So that's what we could do on that side of the um, picture. If we look at the solar radiation management schemes, it's rather different. Um, we do now have a big blob in the top right-hand corner, but it's unfortunately coloured amber, not green, and that's the stratospheric aerosols. So uh, it is the safety concerns that really make that uh, less attractive. And then we have um, space reflectors at the high effectiveness, low affordability, and the cloud albedo enhancement schemes in the middle here uh, as a sort of uh, middle runner. Um, Here's your white roofs, uh, cheap but uh, not enough uh, bang for your buck. And here is the uh, Desert Albedo, um, lost my mouse, there it is, Desert Albedo schemes, uh, which would be more effective but not safe because of the environmental impacts. If you put them all together, you get this picture, and it looks like stratospheric aerosols are the front runner except for the concerns over their safety. If you worry more about safety, as you probably should, then it is possible to look at this a different way. And, I mean, we presented the information in this way in the hopes that people would come up with alternatives. Within 24 hours of the report coming out, um, somebody out there had posted this on the uh, web, and all Andrew Maynard did was to change the x-axis from affordability to safety, and as you can see, the way you present this conditions the way you understand it. And here, the nearest thing to a big green blob in the top right-hand corner is CO2 air capture. That's the engineered scrubbing schemes, um, which, have, which the main disadvantage is simply their cost. And um, some members of the working group uh, were of the opinion, and I agree with them, that cost should not at present be taken as a major uh, issue because the costs we don't really know. Many of these things have only just been invented. They exist on the backs of envelopes and um, in some cases little more than that. And really, um, we should not use the fact that something might cost a lot to prevent us exploring it, at least for the time being, uh, because the information is so unreliable. Okay, so the main points that we arrive at from our evaluation are that geoengineering is very likely to be technically possible, 
but the technology to do so is as yet barely formed and there remain major uncertainties about almost everything, frankly. Uh, and in the face of that, um, they're not really ready for deployment. They're definitely not ready for deployment, but they could be useful at some time in the future to support continuing efforts to reduce emissions. Um, what we need is a precautionary approach. And uh, here, Greenpeace and I disagree because uh, Greenpeace tend to say the precautionary approach is to do nothing. Uh, personally, I think the risks of climate change are sufficient that that is not a precautionary approach and we, to avoid future risks, we need more and better information about what the advantages and disadvantages of some of these techniques might be so that we can reach an informed decision at some time in the future as to whether we wish to use them or not. So sticking our heads in the sand and ignoring them is not, in my view, the right way forward. And all evaluations of these methods should take account of the major differences, the actual attributes of the methods under consideration, particularly this big difference between the CDR and SRM methods. Uh, and we should not try and uh, treat this in a, a simplistic way. It is complicated. We need to get into the complications before we can understand it. So, to summarize the uh, attributes of the carbon dioxide removal techniques, we think these are generally preferable for various reasons. Firstly, they address the root cause of climate change. By removing greenhouse gases that we have put into the atmosphere, they actually attack the problem uh, at its source. Uh, and they thereby return the climate system closer to a natural state, that it, similar to one that it previously had. And that would be a good thing. Simply because it involves fewer uncertainties and risks, we have to a good approximation been there before, and so we would know roughly what it involved. And they could, of course, allow future reductions, not just stabilisation of CO2 concentrations, but future reductions. Negative emissions is uh, the jargon that some people use so that we could, if these were able to work, we could decide at some point in the future that we would like to go back to the pre-industrial level, 280 ppm, or maybe you'd like to go back to another ice age and take it down to 180. I can foresee that there will be some interesting discussions if and when such technology were ever available about exactly where you should stop. And they do address the ocean acidification problem. All of the carbon dioxide removal techniques address that other potentially very serious problem, but they only work slowly. Solar radiation management, on the other hand, operates by directly modifying the Earth's radiation balance and would only take a few years to have an effect. And it could therefore be useful in an emergency if we reach one of these tipping points or think we are approaching one of these tipping points that people talk about, um, or indeed if we decide at some point in the middle of this century that two degrees is far enough, thus far and no further, we should try and limit the temperature at two degrees. One of these techniques would be about the only way we would have of implementing that decision. However, we would be balancing one human intervention, the greenhouse gases, with another, the solar radiation management. And we would have to create and maintain that artificial balance for a very long time for as long as the greenhouse gases remain in the atmosphere, which is, as I'm sure you know, hundreds or thousands of years. And it's not obvious that 
human society has the ability to maintain a deliberate intervention of that sort for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and so we cannot be confident that these schemes would be sustainable in the very long term. And if you stop, you have a problem because the greenhouse gases are still in the atmosphere. If you stop the intervention that is cancelling their effects, then you get all of the pent-up global warming occurring in a few decades. So you get the same effect much faster, albeit later. And that would be very uncomfortable indeed. Also, the climate that you would achieve by these techniques would only approximate one that you would get with less greenhouse warming, as we saw, particularly for variables other than temperature. Temperature is relatively easy to deal with. It's the rainfall, precipitation, uh, the weather systems, uh, localized storms, and potentially ocean currents, including upwelling, um, and uh, systems such as that, that could be uh, affected, not necessarily adversely, but affected by this artificial balance. And so, in our view, these techniques, if to be undertaken at all, should only be undertaken for a limited period, uh, and with an exit strategy. And the exit strategy would have to be either enhanced conventional emissions reduction schemes or one of the carbon dioxide removal schemes. So don't start it unless you know how you're going to stop it. And actually, because of the slow um, uh, timescale on which the carbon dioxide removal operates, you would actually need to start your uh, exit strategy at the same time as you started your main intervention so that over time the safer method could take over from the short-term fix. Not least because these schemes also do nothing to reduce ocean acidification. So, um, among the CDR schemes we would prefer those that don't involve perturbing natural systems and that don't involve large-scale land use changes. And that means that the engineered contained uh, air capture schemes and the enhanced weathering, um, possibly on uh, land surfaces, but more likely in the oceans, would have, um, uh, you know, be relatively well uh, regarded. Um, and after that, the uh, biomass energy and uh, biochar schemes would be... Uh, well worth considering, although they only have limited effect. Uh, ocean fertilization is not on this list. Solar radiation management, we would regard the stratospheric aerosols as being the most promising, uh, despite their potential side effects, which would need to be very seriously researched. And after that, the cloud brightening methods and potentially the space-based schemes which uh, have really not yet been explored uh, enough to know whether they're feasible or not. My own view of how this might play out is sketched in this diagram here, which I've left as a hand-drawn sketch to indicate that it's uh, very sketchy. Um, it shows uh, in the upper line, the BAU, business as usual line, uh, a reasonably realistic projection of what sort of global warming we expect over the next 200 years uh, if we um, 
carry on as we are at present, going up to six degrees uh, sometime in the next century. Uh, I've sketched the eff effect that we might achieve by uh, mitigation and emissions reductions. Um, and if we only achieve that much, we're still climbing up towards four degrees. We've exceeded the two degree threshold that most people uh, seem prepared to uh, work with for the time being. And so the gap needs to be filled by geoengineering. In the short term, that might be a solar radiation management technique, but one would hope that in the longer term, it would be a carbon dioxide removal method that would take over and deliver the uh, modification that you required. And don't forget that we still have two degrees warming, which is going to have impacts and is going to require adaptation, and both of those involve very significant costs to the people concerned. So two degrees is not safe. Two degrees will have impacts and costs associated with it. And of course, the impacts and costs go up as we go up the diagram. We should not forget the human dimension. It's very important. And I apologize for the fact there's only one slide in here. But since I'm uh, visiting the Earth Science Department and talking in the Physics Department, I don't apologize for concentrating on the scientific aspects. But in fact, in practice, the uh, political, and social, and ethical acceptability of these schemes is likely to dominate the scientific and technical factors uh, in the end. Uh, we have to worry about who could or would do it. Um, some of these methods could probably be deployed by individual corporations or even very rich individuals. Uh, and so we have to worry about how we would ensure that uh, uh, un, uh, unscrupulous nations or individuals did not attempt something which was good for them but not good for everybody else. Because the consequences of interfering with the climate system will, like climate change itself, affect everybody. And the equity and um, governance issues are very serious indeed. So in our view, I quote, would be highly undesirable for these techniques to be deployed before we have actually established appropriate governance mechanisms, if indeed we ever do it. So uh, the short summary, what does this mean for Copenhagen? Very clear message, could do better, should try harder. Or else we may have to consider these methods in a few decades time and most of us who've studied them would prefer that we didn't have to. So I very seriously hope that there will be a global agreement uh, on very rapid and deep emissions reductions and that it will not only be a global agreement on targets, but it will actually be a global agreement on mechanisms to actually deliver those targets. Because so far we've heard a lot of talk about targets and very little about how to actually achieve them. Um, however, we may at some stage need it, and therefore we should think about it. We probably could do it if we had to. And we have these two methods, slow but sure and quick and dirty, that would need to be run, in my view, in parallel. Um, the side effects and the risks are substantial and uh, as important as the technical feasibility. At the moment, most of the work on these methods has been done by inventors and enthusiasts 
who very naturally concentrate mostly on the technical feasibility and in some cases get quite deep into the engineering details before they've even thought about what the actual environmental impacts might be. That would need to be uh, dealt with because we need actually as much, probably more, uh, research on environmental and social and other impacts as on technical uh, issues. So, these schemes are not a magic bullet. Um, we need to keep the main focus on mitigation. That's still the safest and most predictable way to moderate the effects of greenhouse gases and we should not allow these to divert from that. However, there is still a lot of uncertainty uh, far too much uncertainty to reach a decision now. What we need is some serious research and development, uh, which need not be very great, in order to produce information so that we can take precautionary risk-adverse decisions. Um, my uh, friend and colleague Wally Broker commented uh, a couple of weeks ago that the amount of money that has been spent in total on engineered air capture methods at the moment uh, is less than the annual salary of one uh, top flight baseball player or footballer. So uh, we need some investment in research and development otherwise we will not have the information on which to base a decision if and when we need it. And we do need to concentrate on governance mechanisms before anybody takes this seriously. I'm going to skip that slide and move to this one and say that all we have done is to kick this ball into play uh, for public debate. We've tried to produce uh, as far as we can a, a, a thorough and reasonably authoritative review but new ideas are still appearing. This is one that appeared on the, um, on the internet a couple of days later. I don't know if you can read the details, but it's from the Daily Mash, uh, which is a site that I was not familiar with before. Um, and it involves um, the use of a 20-foot long egg boiling machine, which could be adapted to capture carbon dioxide and also have the co-benefit of boiling millions of eggs. <laughs> and the gentleman with the violin, or is it a a cello, probably, or a viola, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how that fits into the apparatus, but, <laughs> but, but it is true that new methods are still being invented. Um, I heard about one yesterday, uh, and uh, this is just the beginning of, I think, uh, a serious effort to consider whether this could be done, how it could be done, and whether or not it should be done. So, with that, thank you very much. If you want to read more details, download a copy of the report, and thank you for coming.